Loving Lord, we're very thankful that uh, we can turn to you and ask for your spirit. And uh, Lord, we know that when we come together to learn how to better do your will, that you will bless. And you've made it clear, Lord, that we're to go and to teach and to make disciples. And, and the Great Commission is a first priority, we believe, in your heart. Be with us now as we focus our attention on those things. I pray you'll be with me as I share and uh, help us to not only retain, but to learn things we can use. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The theme of my sharing during these AFCO presentations, now I'll be talking um, 11 o'clock today, tomorrow, and the third day I'll be perfected, <laughs> as Jesus said. And Friday we'll be doing, and then, you know, of course, I'm speaking Sabbath. Um, my emphasis is that whatever doctrine or subject you present, that it's Christ-centered. And my reason for that is I believe the whole Bible is telling us about Jesus. And I always like to use stories in the Bible as a springboard to the different teachings, and so we'll be doing that this morning. If you have your Bibles, you may want to join me and turn to the book of Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, verse 13. And I will be stop, stopping uh, just afternoon because I know you have uh, lunch at the cafeteria at like 12.15, uh, if I'm not mistaken, your schedule today. <clears throat> Luke 24, verse, 15, verse 13, I'm sorry. Luke 24, verse 13. Now, just to give you the background, you probably know, this story picks up the day of the resurrection. It's a Sunday afternoon. Jesus has already appeared at this point to Mary, then to the women together. Then he later appears to um, Peter as an individual moment where he appears to Peter. And before he goes to the upper room, this is what happens. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs, it's seven miles. The word Emmaus means hot water. Now the word Jerusalem means city of peace. So they are going downhill from the city of peace to hot water. So uh, it doesn't sound like they're going the right direction. And it says, and they talked together of all these things that had happened. Those things over the weekend, of course, the betrayal, the torture, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that morning, and the disappearance of the body. Now, they, they're not ready to believe the report of the women, as you'll see, that say that he uh, is risen. They think the women are just uh, overcome with optimism and delusions. And they talk together of all these things that happened. So who are they talking about? And it came to pass, in verse 15, that as they reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, I don't know if you make any notes in your Bible, but this is a simple point that uh, I'd encourage you to remember. When you talk to others about Jesus, he draws near. You'll find that happens more than once in this one story. Christ said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. And so here they are talking together about Jesus. Jesus draws near. But their conversation about Jesus is not an optimistic one. Um, they're discouraged, as you'll see. 
And it says, as they reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, how often does Jesus go with us? And we don't know it. But their eyes were holden that they may not know him. So the Lord had done something supernatural to blind their eyes. So even though he was right there in front of them, they didn't recognize him. Now, there's a reason for that. And you'll see as we go on that if they had known it was Jesus, they would have been overcome with astonishment and emotion. They would not have been able to listen and take in what he was saying because they would have been so distracted by the joy of the event. Sometimes the Lord allows us to go through trials because that's the state of mind where we are receptive. He knew they would be more receptive to what he was going to say if they heard him as opposed to seeing him. So sometimes God allows our eyes to be closed, so we'll listen. You ever seen a person close their eyes during special music? Hopefully they're not just snoozing. But that, uh, you know, they're just taking it in because they want to eliminate any visual interference and say, oh, that music is so beautiful. I'm going to close my eyes and really listen. So their eyes were closed that they might really listen to what he was saying. And he says to them, verse 17, what manner of communications are these that you have one with another as you walk and you are sad? And one of those whose name was Cleopas, he answered and he said to him, are you only a stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things that are come to pass in these days? Now Cleopas, his wife's name is mentioned as one of those who goes to the tomb. Her name, it says Mary, the wife of Cleopas. So there's actually like three Marys that go to the tomb. You've got Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Cleopas. Uh, I think it's, is, is there four Marys? And then Mary of Siloam, and then Mary his mother. May have, no, I don't know that she was in that first group. Anyway, I think there's at least three Marys in that one occasion that comes to the tomb. So now some have argued, well, was this his wife? Um, you, you know, in the Bible, it's hard to tell, but you will actually find the statement in the book Desire of Ages where it says, after he appears to them, these two strong men. So it's two men, evidently, that are going down this road together. And they're discouraged. And he says, what manner of communications are these you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, does God want us to have a sad walk? Don't miss the connection that they did not know him and they were sad. You notice the previous verse, their eyes are closed that they should not know him. And then he says they've got a sad walk. By the end of the story, their eyes are open and they have a happy walk. <laughs> what is eternal life? John chapter 17. Yeah, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ who, is, who he has sent. Knowing good. The Lord will declare to the lost what? I don't know you. And so it's crucial that we know him and they don't know him and they're sad. Now, is the gospel good news or bad news? Good news. Should people that have good news look happy? Why is it that so many don't look happy? You know, it is true that Jesus is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was grieved by sin, but you know, Ellen White says he also had great joy that they could see. And frequently said, I rejoice. And so uh, the Christians, you ought to be happy. 
that you're a Christian. There is sin in the world, there is suffering in the world, there's tragedy, but Jesus gives us a peace that passes understanding. The world already gets a lot of bad news. Any of you remember Paul Harvey, the commentator? Years ago, Karen and I were at a, uh, it was actually an It Is Written function, and uh, Paul Harvey was there and he was talking. Uh, he was friends, as you know, with George Vandeman. He eventually got baptized and joined the Camelback Church. But um, his wife was raised by some Adventist sisters, so they were always very fond of the Adventist church. But he gave a talk and he, just, he said that, you know, several companies have tried to make money sharing good news and they went out of business. Uh, and the, the job of the news industry is they take uh, two bicycles that bump into each other and they try to make it sound like a train wreck. They always try to exacerbate and exaggerate any news and make it sound terrible and they use all these glowing adjectives to try and bring it out and, because, because people, they're captivated by bad news, by tragedy. It's as though we find some relief in looking at the tragedies of others. By comparison, ours don't seem so bad. And uh, sometimes we fall into that trap. You meet someone and you think about what's the latest bad news you have. I've got one sister. She's not a physical sister, but a sister Christian. And I always am reluctant to, when her number comes up on my phone, <laughs> I'm reluctant to pick it up. Because somehow she's always got her ear to ground and she knows what the latest tragedy is. And uh, she can't wait to tell me. <laughs> you know, some of these things are serious, and pastors, you know, we, we want to know if there's something that needs special attention and prayer, but it's almost like she takes joy in telling bad news. <laughs> now, do you know anybody like that? I just wonder, am I the only one that's met a person like that? <laughs> and I think, oh, no, I look at the phone, I go, what is it now? <laughs> But uh, wouldn't it be nice if people saw your number and they just couldn't wait to take your call because they thought, they've always got some good news to share. We don't know that many people like that, do we? You know, they call and they go, I've got some great news. And it's always positive and it's always uplifting. And Jesus said, what manner of communications are these that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? God does not want us to have a sad walk. You may have trials, and we all do. There may be troubles in life, but uh, someone once said a Christian should have zip in their hip and pep in their step and spunk in their trunk and a happy fanatic in the attic. <laughs> we, we ought to be positive people. Matter of fact, I got that from the pastor that baptized me. He's, he used to always repeat that. And he did, you know, and he had trials he, he, he had trials in his life I knew about, but he just was always happy. And I used to wonder, what are they taking? He and his wife were always so positive. He's the one who ended up baptizing me. You know, I was coming out of the world, and I thought, how come they're always so joyful? And they were just so thankful for the gospel. They believed they had everlasting life. And they were so excited about it, and they wanted everyone else to have it. The gospel is good news. And uh, it's amazing. That man retired before I was born, and he baptized me when I was 22, because he was still working. He built a church, after he retired, he built a church, he built a school, he planted two churches. Just a, a, a very godly, enthusiastic uh, evangelist. So when, they, when Jesus asked this question, what manner of communication is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? 
One of them, whose name was Cleopas, he answered and he said to them, are you only a stranger in Jerusalem? What a thing to say to Jesus. And have you not known the things that are come to pass in these days? Was he a stranger in Jerusalem? Did he know what had happened? He was on the front row of what had happened. What a thing to turn to Jesus and say, well, haven't you heard? Tell me. <laughs> Quick story, slightly related. Um, after I accepted Jesus up in the mountains in the cave, um, I wanted to tell other people I was very excited. And, um, but I'm a, I'm a hermit. I mean, I go, went days without seeing anybody. I lived in this cave by a creek. Sometimes hikers would go by because there was a trail that went up the canyon and I'd see somebody. But I said, Lord, I just feel like now, what am I going to do with my life? I, I feel like you want me to tell people about what Jesus has done for me. And I said, and I didn't pray this out loud. It was just in my mind. I said, Lord, look, if you want me to tell other people, you're going to have to let me know that because I don't know how to do it. You know, I go to town once or twice a week. I panhandle. I come back up. I live in the mountains. So I went to town a couple of days after praying that prayer, and um, I called my mom. I used to call her collect back then. You could do that. And uh, just, she said, just check in. I want to know you're alive. You know? And so I'd call and say, hi, everything's fine. I'm, and I called her this day, and she said, Doug, are you going to be uh, around? Because <laughs> sometimes I'd go off on hitchhiking adventures. She said, are you going to be around in the next week or two? I said, yeah. She said, I may come and see you. I said, really? She said, yeah, I'm bringing a film crew. <laughs> I said, really? She said, yeah, I was having lunch with some guy from CBS. And I said, yeah, my son, you know, his dad's a multimillionaire. And he's living in a cave up in the mountains. And they said, oh, you know, that would be a great human interest story. You think he'd let us tape it? She said, really? Well, I'll ask him. I said, yeah, that's fine. And uh, I said, they can't hike up there. It's, it's pretty hard to get up there. It takes hours. And she said, well, they'll rent a helicopter. They'll do whatever they need to do. So I said, yeah, I'd love to see you. So she set a date, and it was like four or five days later. And I met her at the Palm Springs airport. And I'm not exaggerating. There were two film crews that came. She was afraid one wouldn't show up, so she called ABC. No, so she called NBC rather. And this guy named uh, Bill Applegate was the uh, correspondent. She said, uh, "This is a great story." She said, "CBS wants it, but if you guys want it, you should get there first. So they both show up, and there's a big fight at the airport between these two film crews, and they're calling my mother despicable. One of them is anyway, and I'm going, oh. and I'm hanging out with a helicopter pilot. They're just waiting because I knew him because I had done rescues with him before. People got lost or hurt up there. He'd ask me to kind of guide them in because we lived up there. And uh, anyway, so I'm hanging out with Pete, the helicopter pilot. And finally, they sorted things out. And NBC flew up in the cave with me and my mother. They took two trips and bring all the, the crew and the batteries and lights. And uh, took a bunch of pictures and they did a, an interview. And in the interview, they, you know, they asked me, so why are you, you know, your dad's got own airlines and you're living in a cave up here in the white. And so I gave me an opportunity to at least briefly share my testimony. And um, then they, I said, now promise me something when, before we did the interview, don't tell anybody where this is. Because, you know, I said, I found kind of an oasis up here. It's really pretty. And if everyone finds out about it, it's going to ruin it. And so uh, they said, no, no, you can trust us. <laughs> <laughs> So um, uh, I went down to town, 
And uh, they flew my mother up. And see, if you've ever seen the picture on the back of my book, that picture was taken by one of their cameramen. They gave it to us. And so that happened that day. And uh, my mother actually got up to the cave, otherwise she never would have made it. But um, that day I went down to town and I saw it was on the news all over North America. See, back then, 40 years ago, there were only three stations. Some cities had a public broadcast station. It's only like ABC, CBS, NBC, that was it. Any of you remember that? Yes. Yeah, and you put tinfoil on your coat hanger on your antenna to try to get them all to come in clearly. And so I went down to town and I went into a hotel lobby and I said, could I please watch your TV for just a moment? I would have a TV. I said, watch it for just a minute. I said, I'm gonna be on the news. Oh yeah, all right. And so uh, we turned it on and uh, I even called in, there was a cop that went down the street who knew me. I, they all knew me because I was on the street panhandling. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, I'm gonna be on TV, come on in. He came in, he watched it with me. And uh, first thing it says, it shows the helicopter flying up Tokwitz Canyon. It says, in the mountains above Palm Springs in Tokwitz Canyons is a virtual unknown paradise. Oh man, they just told everybody in the world where it is. So, a day or two later, I'm hiking down the canyon and I run into someone on the trail. Now the trail, this one place on the trail is called Cougar's Trail. It's like this wide. And you've got a cliff that goes down several hundred feet in places on this side. And a cliff that goes up, it's just like you would picture in, in you know, some adventure story where you've got this narrow trail, cliffs on both sides, and that's what it's, so you, you pass someone on the trail, you have to talk to them. Um, and so I stopped, and I always wanted to know, because I have no way of locking my things up. Everything's out in the open, and if people go by my cave, they can steal my stuff, and so I'm always wanting to know, where are you going? And, and so I stop and say, hi, how are you doing? He says, yeah, so where are you going? He says, I'm going up in, up in the hills here. I said, what, what are you doing? He says, he said, well, I saw this guy on TV. <laughs> he said, he lives up here in the canyon. I said, really? He said, tell me about it. <laughs> and so I hadn't read the story of the Bible yet. <laughs> and so I'm asking him, you know, and I'm hoping he's going to recognize me, you know, and I'm kind of giving him the profile. I said, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I said, yeah, he lives up there and he lives off the land, which I didn't live off the land. You know, I went to town in Panhandle and bought groceries. And <laughs> And he said, yeah, he kills wild animals. I'm going, what? <laughs> and I'm going, this isn't, where's he getting this? And finally I said, I said, I'm the guy. He said, no, you're not. <laughs> really, I'm going, no, I'm the guy. And I don't know if I ever did persuade him. But um, I, whenever I read this story where Jesus said, what thanks? Tell me about it. And I'm thinking about when I asked that guy, I said, tell me about it. And I'm the guy. <laughs> and he, he didn't believe me. Anyway, I always thought that was a miracle, how right after I pray and say, Lord, if you want me to share the gospel, then you, you know, I, you're going to have to show me. He sends a film crew to my cave, and I get to announce my testimony three times nationally in one day. And I always wish that my mother somehow had taped it, because I don't have that tape. But um, anyway, uh, you know, if you tell the Lord I'm willing to be used, then he'll let you know. Jesus said, the harvest is great, the laborers are few. William Miller prayed and said, Lord, if you want me to share this, he finally surrendered and said, if you want me to share this, you let me know. What happened? Someone knocked on his door, I think within an hour, and said, would you come and share the things? The Lord, he wants us to share. Is there any question about that? No. The laborers are few, the harvest is great. If we're willing to be used, he wants to use us. And um, so...
they start to tell him, well, things concerning, I'm in verse 19. What things? They said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Was he still a prophet? They said, was a prophet. Past tense. They've lost faith. And you notice something they say about Jesus? Mighty indeed and in word. Now, the Pharisees had a lot of deeds, but no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't authentic. Before God and the people, they were more interested in what man saw. But Jesus was, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. And it wasn't just before man, it was before God. So what you're seeing here is it says, before God and before your fellow man, what are the two commandments? Love the Lord, love your neighbor. And that's not only in the word, it's coming out of the heart, it's in the deed. It's, it's the whole thing. Jesus was the real deal, they're saying. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted, this trusted future tense or past tense? They've lost faith. We trusted he was the one which would have redeemed Israel. Israel. And besides this, this is the third day since these things were done. Now you think that would have gone third day. Didn't Jesus say something about a third day? How many times in the ministry of Christ did he say, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be betrayed, I'll be condemned, and after the third day, I'll rise again. There's like half a dozen times you can find in the Gospels where he told them. He said it so frequently, Mary understood. He said, she's come to anoint me before my burial. He said it so frequently, his enemies understood, and they went to Pilate, and they said, this deceiver has said he's going to rise after three days. And so it seemed like everybody got it but the church. And um, it said, he was the one that should have, and this is the third day, and certain women from our company, they made us astonished, which were early at the tomb, and they found not his body. And they came saying also they'd seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us, Peter and John, went to the sepulcher and found it, even as the women said, but him they saw not. Now Jesus has taken all he can take. They're just, they're telling him, me, oh my. Bodies disappeared. We don't know what's happened. It, you know, he died and he was mistreated. We thought he was the Messiah. Now we don't know what to do. And they are so discouraged. They are so downtrodden. They're just, you know, they're mingling the dust in the trail with the tears and making mud and, and walking down to Emmaus, heading for hot water. Got their back to the city of peace. They're going the same way that uh, that man went when he fell among thieves. Finally, Jesus said, Oh, fools. <laughs> Didn't the Bible say don't call any man a fool? Now, they're actually different words. And Jesus is, yeah, he, he don't call anyone worthless. Here he's saying, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. What did Jesus say to Thomas? You believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Slow of heart to believe what? All the prophets have spoken. The prophet said this was going to happen. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? You know, all through the Bible, Peter, when he met with Cornelius, and he said, he taught about Jesus. He told Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 about Jesus. He said, and all the prophets testified of these things. They should have known it. And beginning at Moses, now here's the main thing I want to say to you. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Who wrote the first book of the Bible? Moses. What is the first book? Probably Job. Probably also written by Moses. Though we're not sure, but it sure looks like the same style. And um, then you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses, beginning at Moses. And some of the prophets. All the prophets. All the prophets. He expounded in the unto them in some of the scriptures, all the scriptures. Now, the road between uh, Jerusalem and Emmaus is about seven miles, and if you walk trails like that, three to four miles an hour, it's two hours roughly to make that trip, uh, and if you're pausing at all. I've often thought, how much would I pay for an audio recording I used to say cassette tape, and then I said a CD, and that would be an MP3. Doesn't matter. But if, if I could have an audio recording of Jesus, in English, hopefully, uh, going from Malachi, going from Moses to Malachi, and showing from all the prophets that he was the Messiah. Have you ever wondered, what did he say? Whatever he said must have been really good, because later they testify did not our hearts burn within us as we walked with him by the way? He was opening the scriptures to them and he was putting it all together so that when they saw, they went, how did we miss it? Yeah. It was all through the scriptures. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? He's quoting Psalm, what scripture? Psalm 22. Why did he quote Psalm 22? Go in your Bibles to Psalm 22. I got a new Bible yesterday. And so I'm just getting used to it. Psalm 22 starts out verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, so, why are you so far from helping me? In the words of my roaring. Now, look at verse, I don't have time to read it all. You can go to verse um, 13. They gaped on me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue cleaves to the roof, to the roof of my mouth. Thou has brought me to the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet that I might tell my bones. And they stare at me. They part my garments among them. They cast lots on my vesture. That's just part of it. Why did he quote from Psalm 22? The very, it wasn't discouraged. First of all, the high priest would always quote from one of the Psalms during the Passover. And they quote typically from what they called one of the Messianic Psalms. This was one of the Messianic Psalms. He quotes the first verse and he's saying, keep reading. The very things in, in that psalm is what's happening right in front of them. And I can't help but wonder if maybe the thief on the cross, he went, he saw them gambling. He saw them dividing his garments. He saw them mocking. He saw Christ suffering. He saw the sign above his head, this is the king of the Jews. And then he heard Christ quote Psalm 22 and he went, Eureka, this is him. Because, you know, he started out mocking like the other thief. But something happened. How much scripture tells us that Jesus is the Messiah? All the scriptures. So I took that to heart 
And for years, I have been reading all of the Old Testament. Every, every year I'm reading through the Bible. Well, I should take that back. Lately, I'm, what I'm doing is, now I take three years to read through the Bible. I've been doing this for several years, where I, New Testament one year, Old Testament two years. I found when I read through it quickly, I don't get as much. And I can do, you can do that. You can read through the whole Bible in a month, and you know, you'll read like 25 chapters a day, or maybe it's more than that. But um, I think at nine chapters a day, you read through the Bible in a year. But I found that I wanted to, I read things, I wanted to look them up. And so I started uh, doing three years, reading through the Bible every three years. Now I'm always reading through the Bible, I'm doing it today, you know, preaching, preparing for sermons and articles, I'm reading different places, but I mean, cover to cover, I'm always reading through the Bible. And special mission of mine has been, how do I see Christ in the gospel? In particular, in the Old Testament stories. Christ said, search the scriptures, and then in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. It's all telling us something about Jesus. Now, I want to read something to you before we get back to our story here. Um, a couple of quotes. I've got one from Spirit of Prophecy, and one, if you'll indulge me, from Spurgeon. This is from, Ellen White wrote this in the book, That I Might Know Him, page 208. It's a devotional. And beginning at Moses and all the scriptures, he expounded unto them in uh, these things concerning himself. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. There is one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in searching the scriptures. One great central truth. In all the scriptures. Christ and him crucified. Every other truth is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relationship to this theme. It is only in the light of the cross that we can discern the exalted character of the law of God. The soul palsied by sin can be endowed with life only through the work wrought upon the cross by the author of our salvation. The love of Christ constrains man to unite with him in his labors and sacrifice. The revelation of divine love awakens in them a sense of their neglected obligation to be light bearers to the world and inspires them with a missionary spirit. This truth enlightens the mind and sanctifies the soul. It will banish unbelief and inspire faith. When Christ in his work of redemption is seen to be the great central truth in the system of truth, a new light is shed upon all the events of past and future. They are seen in new relation and they possess new and deeper significance. So I catch this in particular. The Old Testament is as verily the gospel in types and shadows as the New Testament is in its unfolding power. The New Testament does not present a new religion. The Old Testament does not present a religion to be superseded by the new. This is what a lot of my friends in charismatic churches believe. They think, well, I know today I'm in the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at the Old. And it's like they're almost apologetic about looking at the Old Testament. It's the same Bible. It's the same. And they say, well, you know, God of the Old Testament seems different from the God of the New Testament. You ever heard that one? <laughs> Why do people say that? I hear him say, well, Jesus seems so different. He's so loving. I haven't read Revelation, where he talks about the wrath of the Lamb. <laughs> and they say, oh, there's all the plagues and war. Well, there's crucifixion and plagues in the New Testament. I mean, and you get the mercy of God in the Old Testament. His mercy endures forever. I mean, it, I just don't know why they say that. They usually don't know the Old Testament. <clears throat> or they read just parts of it. It says, the New Testament does not present a religion 
a new religion. The Old Testament does not present a religion to be superseded by the new. The New Testament is only the advancement and unfolding of the old. Abel was a believer in Christ as was, and was as verily saved by his power as was Peter and Paul. Enoch was a representative of Christ as surely as was the beloved disciple John. The God who walked with Enoch was our Lord and Savior. Jesus, he was the light of the world then just as he is now. The truth for this time is broad in its outlines, far-reaching, embracing many doctrines, but these doctrines are not detached items that mean little. They are united by golden threads, forming a complete whole, with Christ at the living center. It's like, you know, if you, um, you look at a tapestry from behind, it might look like a tangle of threads. I got a pair of socks like that. They get a little design on them, and if Karen gets them inside out and they end up in my drawer, I think, what an ugly pair of socks. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, I got, I got to spin them around. They get a really pretty design on the other side. <clears throat> well, that's the way it is with the gospel. When we look at the whole tapestry of the gospel in Christ, we can see the golden thread of salvation woven through the whole thing. Now, this is a great quote, if you don't mind. This is from the book uh, Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. I'll tell you, he had this right. These are they which testify of me. He's quoting from John 5, 39. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega of the Bible. He is its constant theme of its sacred pages. From first to last, they testify of him. At the creation, we at once discern him as, the sacred, as one of the sacred trinity. We catch a glimpse of him in the promise of the woman's seed. We see him typified in the ark of Noah. We walk with Abraham as he sees the Messiah's day. We dwell in the tents of Isaac and Jacob, feeding upon the gracious promise. We hear the venerable Israel talking of Shiloh and the numbers of types and shadows we find the Redeemer abundantly foreshadowed. Prophets and kings, priests and preachers all look one way. They all stand as the cherub did over the ark, desiring to look within and to read the mystery of God's great procreation. Still, more manifestly in the New Testament, we find our Lord the one pervading subject. It's not an ingot of gold here and there, or dust thinly scattered, but here you stand upon a solid floor of gold. The whole substance of the New Testament is Jesus crucified. Even its closing sentences bejeweled with the Redeemer's name. We should always read Scripture in this light. We should consider the word to be a mirror in which Christ looks down from heaven and then we, looking into it, see his face reflected as in a glass darkly, it is true, but still in such a way as to be blessed, a blessed preparation for seeing him as we will see him face to face. This volume, the Bible, contains Jesus Christ's letters to us, perfumed by his love. These pages are the garments of our king. They all smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. The scripture is the royal chariot in which Jesus rides. It is paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. The scriptures are the swaddling bands of the holy child Jesus. Unroll them and you will find your Savior. The quintessence of the word of God is Christ. That last sentence is the best. The quintessence of the word of God is Christ. This is June 10 uh, morning. This is the morning reading for Spurgeon, June 10. And I always thought that was so eloquent because it really captures the idea that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, <clears throat> having said that, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he accounts unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I've just made notes for years from my own study of how you find Jesus in all the Bible. A few years ago, about two years ago, I put it in a book called Shadows of Light. And um, I won't be covering that this week, so to speak. 
But uh, you know, I, I take Adam and Abraham and Noah and Enoch and all the Bible characters, not all, but many of the great Bible characters, Jonah and Esther and Gideon and Elijah and Elisha, talking about Elijah this week here. And I say, you see the gospel in all these stories. Now, just as an exercise, because this is supposed to be more of a class than a, um, a sermon, though I know it sounds like I'm just preaching. If you were to name an Old Testament story, still working? If you were to name an Old Testament story, um, let's find the gospel in it. Now, I'm going to just go out on a limb here. Name a character or story in the Bible, and I just want to show you, well, let me, I'll tell you what, I'll start you out. Let's find out how the apostles did it. One of the great scenarios of salvation is the Exodus. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 shows us how you take that story and you look for Christ. He said Jesus was the rock. He says Jesus was the bread. They were baptized in the Red Sea. They were baptized in Christ. The pillar of fire. They were baptized in the fire of Christ. And uh, so Paul draws an analogy. He finds the types of Christ in the story of the Exodus. You remember reading that, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, a matter of fact, in a lot of Paul's preaching, when you wondered, what did they hear Jesus say on the road to Emmaus? Probably they shared some of that with Paul and some of it with Peter because the apostles in their letters used some of the analogies. But just to give you an example, um, you pick a Bible story. Samson. I heard Samson first, and we'll do Esther, okay? Do you see Jesus in the story of Samson? Now, the way many people think of the story of Samson, you got this womanizing muscle man who drinks. And how in the world could he ever be a type of Christ? God tells him, you know, you're supposed to be my representative, and he just kind of blows the whole thing and betrays his secret, and he hangs out with the Philistines, and... All right, that's the way some people say, how are you going to see Jesus in the story of Samson? Was Samson a miracle birth? Was his mother visited by an angel? Um, was he called a great deliverer of the people? Was he blinded? So, you know, they put a bag over Jesus' head when they began to torture him. They blinded him. Was Samson bound? Christ was bound. Did Samson die between two pillars? Jesus between two thieves? Was the last act of Samson's life one of sacrifice? And did he stretch out his arms? Is Samson listed among the saved in Hebrews 11? Uh, was Samson's spirit fell? Did Samson kill the lion? Who is the lion a type of? The devil goes around as a roaring lion. Yeah. Did Samson break the chains? Does Jesus break our chains? Um, was Samson, with a very simple instrument, the jawbone of a donkey, able to defeat the enemy? Can God speak through a donkey? And could God, through the apostles, share the gospel and shake the world? Through very simple instruments that everyone else would think was unworthy, he was able to achieve a great victory. I go through, I don't have time to do it right now, but there's a lot of types you can see in the story of Samson. Did Samson, um, was Samson betrayed by a woman that was supposed to love him? 
Was Jesus betrayed by the church? Um, was Samson sold for silver? Was Jesus betrayed for silver? I, there's a lot more, like I said, I could go, but you'll see. In the book, I cover some more of this, but Samson. Now, someone else said Esther, so if it's okay, we'll do that next. And I, it's not going to be, it, these are not comprehensive. I'm just giving you some little ideas because I want you to see it. Um, Esther. Esther's an interesting story. For one thing, it begins following a three-and-a-half-year period. Jesus taught for three-and-a-half years. It says, in the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus, there was a feast lasting 180 days. And at that point, a pagan queen is deposed, and a process has begun where she's replaced by a Jewish queen. Um, all through the Old Testament, God is overthrowing the, um, uh, his people that get involved with paganism. And he wants a pure bride in the New Testament for a while, anyway, is an example of that. Is there a, 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 an arch villain in the book of Esther? What's his name? Haman. And what does he want to do? Annihilate all of God's people. Is he wroth with the woman? He's wanting to destroy the church. Um, why? Because they will not bow down. Is there a law made that all of them should be killed? Does Revelation say because God's people don't bow down, there's a law made that all should be killed? Ellen White even quotes back to Esther talking about the future prophecies in the book Prophets and Kings. Um, you notice that Haman, he wants the king's position. Matter of fact, uh, Mordecai saves the king's life. The whole kingdom really is saved by Mordecai when you think about it. He saves the king's life. The king can't sleep one night. And so he says uh, to his scribe, he says, look, you know, the most boring thing I ever hear is when you guys read the Chronicles to me. He says, get out the, get out the notes from our, our last meetings and just read the notes to me. That'll put me to sleep in a hurry. <laughs> and so they're reading the notes to the king, and the king is going, yeah. And then Olson says, and an attempt was made on the king's life. And the king goes, yeah, they're going to kill me. But it was exposed by Mordecai, the Jew that sits in the king's gate. King said, hey, he saved my life. What did we do for him? Anything in the footnotes? And they look and they say, we didn't do anything for him. King is thinking, wow, that's not very kingly of me not to do anything for a guy who saves my life. We baptized a member in Sacramento. Someone tried to shoot Gerald Ford. They missed and they hit a taxi driver. His name was uh, John. And uh, the president then this is in history. I don't know if you remember. In San Francisco, a lady tried to shoot Carol Ford. And the, they stopped her, and the bullet ricocheted off something, and it hit our friend John, who was a taxi driver. Uh, he was a Jew. We ended up baptizing him. But he said the president wrote him a letter to thank him for taking a bullet that was meant for him. Wow. And he asked, he said, can I come visit you at the White House? He said, no. <laughs> I was kind of devastated by that. But uh, he had framed the letter from Gerald Ford. So the king said, um, yeah, we really ought to do something for this guy. And while the king is thinking, what shall I do for Mordecai? So who's there? They said, uh, this is your guard. Someone's at the gate that wants to see you. Who is it? Haman. He said, oh, Haman, he's my buddy. Bring him in. Now, he doesn't know Haman's there because he wants a death decree. He, wants, he can't even wait for the day to kill all the Jews. He wants the king to sign a special decree 
that he can hang Mordecai from the highest gallows. And the king says, Haman, I'm glad you're here. He said, I don't know what you want. He said, I got an idea first before you, before you share what's on your mind. Here's, here's something I'm thinking. What will be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman thinks is in his little heart. <laughs> Who would the king want to honor more than moi? <laughs> and so he says, well, put him on the king's royal horse. Put the king's robe on him. Put the king's crown on his head. Have the most prominent, auspicious person march up the street with the trumpets and say, thus it will be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Basically, what he's saying is, I want to be the king. What did the devil want? He wanted to be God. And can you imagine the look on Mordecai's, uh, Haman's face when he said, that sounds pretty good. Tell you what, let's do that. I want you to do everything you said. Don't leave anything out. And you can be the one to lead him up the street. And by the name is Mordecai the Jew. You know, the Bible is better than fiction, isn't it? And uh, this tells you, the, the Bible says, the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The devil wanted God's position. Jesus, who humbled himself, is on the right hand of God. And so... And, and the end of the story is all about a woman who intercedes with the king. And what is the work of the church? To intercede for those who are perishing, right? Her people. And, um, and so she finds grace. You know, she comes and she risks her life to save her people. And she fasts. And this is what we ought to be doing, putting our lives on the line. So you get the whole gospel. The end of the story of Esther, the ones who want to destroy God's people are destroyed and God's people end up becoming more prosperous and they're blessed and Mordecai gets the position that Haman had lost and he's at the right hand of the king. Anyway, so you've got the whole gospel story of good, the great controversy is in the book of Esther. Um, I don't want to take all our time with, with this, but uh, a couple more. Uh, Manasseh. Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked king. He's the most wicked of the kings of Judah. He killed Isaiah the prophet. You read about, uh, now Josephus says Isaiah was placed in a hollow log and sawn in two by Manasseh. And the Hebrews does say some of them were sawn asunder. And he had his own children pass through the fire. Wicked king. Because of his wickedness, he's carried off to Babylon. It's, he's carried off to um, Babylon, but it's ruled then by the Assyrians. And they drag him through the thorns. And in prison, in his affliction, he repents and he prays. His father was Hezekiah, good king. He prays, he repents, he humbles himself greatly, and God is moved by his prayer, brings him back to the kingdom, and, and he's restored. Uh, look at the mercy of God you find in the story of Hezekiah, how patient God is, that the king that you and I would think has no redeemable qualities, reigns longer than any king, 55 years that uh, God would have mercy on him. I mean, how can you forgive in infanticide? How can you forgive killing the prophets? First, Paul says, I killed the prophets too. And God forgave the king. So in that sense, you find him there. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I see, like, I've waxed eloquent with my own voice. I become hypnotized by my own voice and I lose track of time. And... Um, <clears throat> When Abraham goes up the mountain 
and he brings his beloved son and he offers him there. And Isaac's got the wood on his back. And the replacement for Isaac is a, is a ram with a crown of thorns. Do you see the gospel in that story? It says they go three days journey to Mount Moriah and then they go up the mountain half a day's journey and then there's a sacrifice made. Jesus, from the time his ministry begins, you get three and a half years to the place of sacrifice. In the story of Moses standing on the mountain and as long as his hands are outstretched, they win the victory. You see the story of the gospel. In David, when he's going up the Mount of Olives and he weeps over Jerusalem, do you see Jesus, the son of David, weeping over Jerusalem? And you know, what shall I more say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, who is a type of Christ, and Jephthah, and Barak, and all these Bible heroes. Joseph, whoo, betrayed by his brothers for the price of a slave, silver, he sold, they put him in a pit, He's in prison. He's between two, a uh, baker and a butler and a candlestick maker. No. <laughs> and uh, a baker and a butler. And one lives, the other dies. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. And one day Joseph goes from being a prisoner to the right hand of Pharaoh and he's ruling over all. From the tomb, Jesus goes in one day to the right hand of God. Um, he tests his brothers. And the whole test revolves around bread. And do they still love their younger brother? Will they sacrifice themselves to save their younger brother? Because he knew what they did to him out of jealousy. All these years, he's wondering, what have they done to Benjamin? And so he sees that Judah finally says, um, let the lad go free. I will take his place. He sees his brothers are really changed. And you know when he reveals himself? At a special supper, he sits down with the 12 of them. And there's a test around a cup. Does Jesus sit down? Is there a cup with a covenant? And, and, you know, the first words out of Joseph's mouth, can you imagine the look on their face? After Judah makes a speech and says, uh, you know, take me, let your brother go home. How can I watch my father's gray hairs go down to the grave in sorrow? And Joseph starts to break down and sob, and he sends out all the Egyptians, and he makes himself known. He reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, does my father yet live? I am Joseph. Again, I'd like to see, I want to see the look on Mordecai's, on Haman's face when the king says, do this to Mordecai. A, a freeze picture, that, that would be enough. Just, yes. just a, you know, that look. <laughs> and I'd like to see the look on Joseph's brother's face when he says to them, they've been talking to him through a translator, but when he reveals himself in the upper room, all of a sudden he speaks perfect Hebrew. And he says, I am Joseph. Now, does Jesus say, I am? I want to see their faces when they try to take all that in. <laughs> they just go, yes. Oh, Job. The story of Christ in Job? You mean the gospel in Job? Oh, yeah. Um, Job is, he's a wonderful example of Job. Physically, a lot of what Job went through were like the sufferings of Christ. He suffered like no one ever suffered, though he was innocent. Job suffers because there's a great controversy in heaven that must be resolved. And Christ here on earth is suffering for that. Job intercedes for his friends. Jesus is our intercessor at the end of the story of Job. He ends with this story about this Leviathan, this great serpent. 
And Jesus, you know, is in a battle with this great Leviathan, this great serpent. Job, you see a lot of the story. It says that uh, it talks about they spit on my face in Job and the sufferings uh, that Job went through, very similar to the sufferings of Christ. You know who has a great uh, CD series on that is Stephen Bohr. Because for my book, I even listened to Stephen's stuff and I plagiarized a little bit. He had some really good points uh, on, on Job, some analogies that were there. So, go back to our story. I want to finish this off. And go to Luke 24. I'm just going to read through. And uh, So they're walking down the road. He opens to them the scriptures. And they drew nigh to the village where they were going. A little fork in the road says Emmaus. And they were going to turn off into the town. And the sun's going down. And he would have gone further. He acted like, well, you know, I guess I'll see you guys later. But they constrained him. You know, Jesus won't come in unless you invite him. Abide with us. It is toward evening. You've heard that song, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The day is far spent. And if you ask him to go in, will he go in? If you ask Christ to come with you, will he come with you? And he went with them. Came to pass as they sat at meat with them, he took bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And it's common before you have bread. We just did this uh, in Israel a few weeks ago. We uh, had a supper there in Jerusalem and the only prayer I remember from my grandparents was the prayer over the bread, which is, So they said, would you like to have the prayer? He said, sure. He takes his hood and throws it back, and he stretches out his hands, and he goes like this. And all of a sudden, their eyes are opened, and he breaks the bread, and he says the prayer, and they go, Jesus! And he goes, poof, he disappears. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of a dirty trick, wasn't it? <laughs> and their eyes were opened and they knew him. Now, when were their eyes open? In the breaking of bread, his eyes were opened. Do you like to know the Lord? When are, his eyes, when are your eyes open? What is the bread? The word of God. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us by the way and he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. Now, wait a second, they had just walked seven miles. It's been a long day. Why don't they wait till morning? This is the most important point. You want to talk about evangelism at AFCO? Why didn't they wait? They had good news. They could not wait to share it. They had the news that Jesus was alive. They had friends up in the upper room that were mourning still. They were frightened. It says they gathered together for fear. They were fear, fearful. Now, here's a big question. They saw Jesus' form going downhill in the daytime, but they were unhappy because they didn't know him. Now they're going uphill in the dark. Where are they happier? <laughs> they're probably more tired. I don't even know if they ate yet. Like the woman at the well, they may have left their bread and run, or maybe they took it and ate on the right way. And, but they are happier. Which trip do you think they made quicker, the downhill or the uphill? Uphill. uphill. You know, I, um, the fastest trip I ever made up the canyon, it's a very hard hike. Fastest trip I ever made up the canyon was when I found someone who had fallen off a cliff. I was with my friend Greg. It may be in this book, I don't remember. And we saw a guy, he was sitting on the edge of a precipice. And we said, hello, he didn't answer. 
and we found out he was in shock and he had broken bones and he had fallen down he was sitting on another edge. We didn't know that he had already just fallen and he couldn't do anything. So Greg and I ran to town, we called the search and rescue and we uh, went back up the hill because we knew that guy was alone and he needed help. We were hoping he wasn't going to tumble off or something and so fastest trip I ever made was going uphill because someone's life depended on it. And if you know that Jesus is alive and you know people are perishing, you can go uphill pretty quick. But they were happier. Even though it's dark, they're happy. And you notice they're going to Jerusalem now and they're getting out of hot water because <laughs> they know Jesus was alive. All right, I'm almost done. And they went to the upper room. They said, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon because Peter had said, the Lord has appeared to me. And they said, oh, you're crazy. He did appear to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way, how he was known in the breaking of bread. And as they spoke, who are they talking about? Talking about Jesus. As they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in their midst. He said, peace be unto you. Talking about Jesus, he appears again as they're sharing with others about Christ. Now, wait a second. How did Jesus get there? Did he just beam himself? You know, if you read Desire of Ages, I used to think he walked through the walls. Jesus said when they entered the upper room, he entered with them. He was unseen. That he was with them going uphill the whole way. And they didn't see him. But they're happy because they know he's alive. Before they saw him, but they didn't know. And uh, suddenly, he says, peace be to them. Good news, peace. Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and feet, it's me. And he says, you got anything to eat? They still think he's a ghost. He says, I, I want to eat. So they give him a honeycomb, a piece of fish. Jesus wants us to fish for men, right? Notice, last thing I'll read. These are the words I spoke to you while I was yet with you. I'm in verse 44. That all things must be fulfilled that are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. What's it say? Concerning me. All of the Bible is talking about Jesus. Amen? So when you present health, do it in the context of Christ. When you present the mark of the beast, in the context of Jesus. When you present the state of the dead, or the punishment of the wicked, or any Bible study that you give, keep it revolving. Jesus is the axle. The cross of Christ is the axle on which the gospel rotates. And just make sure that you always keep it in the center because even Jesus said, this is what it's all about, the whole Bible. And in sharing this with others, uh, you will be blessed. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.